The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, I'm Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Previously, we discussed the ethics of being human, and following along these lines, today we're talking about personhood. Who is a person? What does non-human rights mean? Who does it refer to? What is at stake or at risk? Who will it affect? What, how, and why? As we learn more about the intricacies of animal rights and animal welfare, loaded questions, outdated mindsets, and a veritable minefield of laws that will necessarily come under the bright, hot spotlight. Most of us consider pets as part of our family. We consider them as persons when we speak of their character and personality. But what does this mean in the legal sense in terms of rights? Especially as this question in points of law broadens out into the myriad of animals we buy, sell, trade, and use in science or in captivity, whether in zoos or private ownership, and factory farms, leading into perhaps another minefield altogether, the rights and welfare of wildlife, those vast numbers of non-human animals that live amongst and alongside of us, often unnamed and of dubious or unclear ownership by both citizens and governments and associated agencies tasked with their conservation and protection. And then there's marine life. Here to answer some of those questions and help us understand the legal minefield on the path of personhood to rights represented under law is my guest, attorney and author Stephen Wise, who's president of the Non-Human Rights Project, Stephen has practiced and taught animal protection law for 30 years and has been variously highlighted through many law review articles, court battles, and books, including Rattling the Cage and Drawing the Line, and also was the subject of the NBC Dateline documentary, A Legal Person. Welcome, Steve. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. I have known of your work for many years and on many levels have read many of your articles and listen to many of your presentations. So to get us going and help our listenerships where we're moving from today and this discussion, how about we begin with you giving us a brief bit of background of how you got into this field and then we'll need a definition of personhood. Uh, Sure. I was a uh, young lawyer and in 1980 uh, I encountered Peter Singer's book and when I read Peter Singer's book all of a sudden 
uh, I realized for the first time uh, how we treated non-human animals, how badly we treated them, how many we treated so badly, uh, and I realized that indeed I was part of, of, of the problem and not part of any, any sort of a solution. And I had gone into law because I was interested in issues of social justice and uh, I thought that, uh, that I, my talents could best be applied to working for or in the interest of non-human animals as there were so many of them, they were treated so badly, and there didn't seem to be anyone else in the world who was, who was uh, working on their behalf, at least as a as a lawyer, so that's when I began in 1980. Uh, in 19, uh, I, I then uh, met many people who uh, would later become uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and I was president of the Animal Legal Defense Fund from 1985 to 1995. And about 1985, uh, I realized that there was really a, a systemic problem. Uh, anyone who was trying to uh, battle for the in the interests of non-human animals, of any any interests of any non-human animal was going to continually run into the, the stone wall of their thinghood. The fact is that they were things. Now in law there's really things and there's persons. And a thing is invisible to the civil law, uh, does not have the capacities for any kind of rights, doesn't count at all in law, and in essence is, is the slave of persons, are, are seen by, by the law as really existing on earth for persons. On the other hand, a person is very visible to civil law, is really the master of the things, you know, counts v very much, and is seen as, as, as existing on earth for, for uh, his or her um, own, own purposes. Her value is, is intrinsic as, as opposed to the value of non-human animals or th as, as things, uh, which is instrumental. Let me, and so let me, let that's when I began. Let me step in here. Well, I'm, I'm glad we got through that because it, it was really important. But um, we skipped over just a tiny little, I think, big issue. Person. When you talked about persons versus things, it's, it's a presumption there that persons are humans. So therefore, the term non-human legal rights, which is a new term, relatively speaking. Um, I, I presume through your career and with the uh, Animal Legal Defense Fund that non-human animals became a coined phrase. Yes? Yes. Uh, non-human animals now is, is a very common phrase. Uh, when I started using it in 1985, it was not common uh, at all. And indeed, it reflected uh, similar sorts of issues that, that were appearing in the, in the scientific literature that uh, uh, people started talking about non-human animals or non-human primates as opposed to animals and primates, right. which kind of implicitly left out human human beings. So uh, now it's a very common phrase, and I, I, I use it all the time. I, I hardly ever just talk about animals because that includes human beings. If I want to differentiate between a non-human animal and a human animal, then I'll say human being or non-human animal. And right there is from 1985, you said, to today, or I'm going to say even 10 years ago, because this has been um, on the landscape, on, on our horizon for at least 10 years that I'm aware of, probably longer in terms of you, 30 years. But it's a, it shows that a paradigm shift has happened. We have accepted the term non-human animals. So that gives us a basis to work from. So in terms of personhood, as it applied to law before you got started here into non-human personhood, 
let's let's just I think there's four points that you've alluded to in, in many of your lectures and, and talks and articles. What defines a person under the law? How is a person defined? Well, a person is not synonymous with human being and never has been synonymous with human beings. Uh, for, but don't we uh, assume that, though? Uh, only you're, if you do, you, then you're assuming something in, incorrectly. Okay. Uh, there have been, there have been uh, things uh, for you know, thousands of years, and non-human animals have always been things, but so have many human beings. Uh, if, you, uh, if you look at um, things today, you will find that there are no humans who are things, but if you had looked at, at, at to see who was a thing 200 years ago, you would have seen that slaves were things, to some degree women were things, children were, th were things, Native Americans were things. Um, they, none of them uh, really had any, any substantial rights. Sort uh, of anything, anything other than white Western patriarchal society. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if it. If we don't have to go there. That was that was a comment of mine. There certainly were a lot of human beings who were things for one or one or more purposes, oftentimes for every, every purpose. Right. Meanwhile, persons uh, 200 years ago did include human beings, but as as I, I just explained, not all human beings, just some human beings. But then and now, there are many entities who are not human beings who are also persons. So, for example, um, uh, corporations are persons. Ever in, in the United States, ever since the Citizens United case came down, the average, average American understands that corporations can be persons. But lawyers have known that corporations can be persons you know, for hundreds of years. Uh, so corporations can be persons. Ships are persons. Uh, a state may, may be a person there. And if you look at some of our, of our sister English-speaking or common-law countries, uh, you can see other examples of non-human persons. Uh, in in pre-independence India, a court held that a Hindu idol was a person, that a mosque was a person. In 2000, the Indian Supreme Court held that the holy books of the Sikh religion was a person. And in 2012, there was a treaty between the indigenous peoples of New Zealand and the Crown in which it, it was agreed that a certain river, the Wanganui River, was a person that owned its own bed. So, person is not synonymous with humans, had never, has never been synonymous with humans. All humans have never been persons, and always many persons are not, not humans. What, <laughs> what personhood is, is it's something that courts or legislatures characterize both as, as a matter of public policy or really as, as a matter of morality. They, something ought to be a, a person, which means they ought to have at least one right because we think it's either the right thing to do or it's a good thing to do. So does personhood sort of entail um, a self-awareness, um, no. a thinking being? Well, a river wouldn't be that. So That's right. That's so right. This, this, this gets very sticky in terms of th this place we're at now in fighting for non-human animal rights and um, in captivity, in private ownership, in zoos, and then we'll get into wildlife and what, how the effect on that. So um, let's, I'm trying to figure out where we can find a, a break point in here to start the discussion of personhood to non-human rights. 
Well, per person really means some entity who has the capacity for one or more legal rights. That's really what a person is. Okay. Okay. And so, since there are many sorts of persons, and there are many sorts of things, what the Non-Human Rights Project do does is uh, try to understand why courts might designate some entity as a person or some entity as a, as a thing. Uh, so, one of the things that, that I did when I began lo looking in 1985 uh, to try to solve the problem of the fact that, that non-human animals are things and therefore it's almost impossible to represent even their most fundamental interests. One of the first things I did was, was to spend seven years going to the library trying to understand what are legal rights, where did legal rights come from, who has legal rights, uh, where did the law come from? Um, uh, everything that everything that I could understand about about law and rights, beginning with the Mesopotamians, beginning like in 4000 BC, I began there and went to the uh, to Hebrew law, to Greek law, to Roman law, to civil law, to common law. You know, trying to understand these kinds of fundamental questions: where do rights come from, and who ought to have them, and I also wanted to understand what were the, the, the really the most important values and principles that judges held because early on I decided that the, the best way to be able to argue to a, to a, a court that a non-human animal who has, been, who has been a thing ought to be a legal person with the capacity for one or more rights would be to do it in the language that judges already understood, to understand what values and principles judges already deeply hold and try to explain to them, demonstrate to them, that the arguments uh, for why some non-human animals ought, ought to be persons uh, fit within those values and principles that they already consider to be very, very important. So this it gets into what you talked about in terms of procedural theories. You had to start really at the beginning through the legal system to, as you just said, study and understand a wide scope of rights, personhood, non-human personhood or rights, and bring that all together to start yes. doing what you did. So you are groundbreaking in terms of what the non-human rights legal project is and does. Well, well, yes, and also what what the non-human rights project you know does and, and, and what what it's involved in was first it it took me in 1985. Uh, I figured it was going to take 30 years of, of work for me to be able to reach the point where we where we would be able to file lawsuits that have some reasonable chance of winning. So if you bring yourself back to 1985, there are really no law classes, no law review articles, no books, uh, all, nothing really uh, about an, animal rights. And it, in fact, it was seen as something that, that was very, very strange. And so, so I had to... Uh, be able to uh, understand all about rights, all about law, where law comes from, where, where rights come, come from, but also had to begin to put courses together and try to persuade law schools to allow me to teach it, to begin to write, to begin to write law review articles that I hoped my brothers and sisters in the legal profession and judges would, uh, would actually read. Uh, I eventually decided to write a book, Raveling the Cage, because I, because I didn't think that my law review articles were reaching a wide enough audience. And, and it's then an excellent I had to, book. I read that one. Fabulous book. Thank you. 
And then I had to um, begin to form an organization which eventually became known as the Non-Human Rights Project that had enough people doing enough work so that we would be ready to file these sorts of extremely complex suits. And then we had to put together really another long-term strategic litigation program. And uh, and so it, it wasn't really until until 2007 that the Non-Human Rights Project really kicked in, in into high gear because at that point we could begin to see that the world was coming around to us, that, that between the arguments that we were going to make and the way that judges were understanding what non-human animal rights possibly, possibly could be, that the time was coming when, when it would be the right time to file those suits. And it turned out it did not take 30 years. Did not, it only took 28 years from the time I decided that, that we have to, have to begin until the time that we were able to file the first suits in which we had some reasonable chance of, of success, really in breaking through the wall that separates all legal things from all legal persons. And so the Non-Human Rights Project filed its first suits, three of them, uh, in the state of New York in the during the first week of December 2013. 2013, that's how long it's taken. Right. Wow, this it, is this is fascinating. We have so much to cover. Right now, we need to just skip off to a short break. So listeners, stick with us because we have a lot more coming up. And um, this is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Stephen Wise, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and we're talking about 
personhood and non-human legal rights with my guest, Stephen Wise. So just before the break, uh, Stephen gave us a good history of where this began in the 19... 30 years for him in law, and then in the 1980s, segueing into um, animal rights and personhood and uh, coalescing a ton of information, uh, historical information, to bring about a legal definition that would be uh, a basis for procedural theory that judges would allow into court to be able to defend non-human animal rights. So, Stephen... Uh, you and I are of an age group that we were alive and adults in 1985, and um, it shows what a paradigm shift it is for this generation, our generation who are older, to accept this non-human animal rights and change of inclusion of, of personhood. But there's a lot of people alive today who were not born in 1985, you know, 1990s. And they're coming into our world today and becoming lawyers, attorneys, and animal activists that take this as a presumption, as an assumption that animals have rights. But as you've just explained, that hasn't always been the case. So maybe you could give us a clue of your, your first groundbreaking case. How did that go? And then we could sure. segue into... Uh, which was in the news a lot last year, which is why we couldn't talk last year. You were very busy with Tommy the chimpanzee. So um, help us understand what this groundbreaking was in in the actual legal system. Sure. Well, we had to make in the Non-Human Rights Project a whole series, you know, many, many decisions. We, we had to decide what animals we were going to be our first Plaintiffs, we had had to decide uh, what causes of action, what legal causes of action we we're going to use. We had to figure out where we we're going to file the cases, and these things all took a very long time to understand. Um, I began writing about uh, about the sort of animals that we were going to use in in the year 2000 when Rathley Rathley the Cage came out, and then drawing the line where I did an enormous amount of research about the cognitive abilities of all four species of great apes about uh, the, uh, both species of elephants, about dolphins, and, and others, and visited the researchers all over the world who knew the most about them, read, read all their articles, and so I became persuaded that, uh, that I thought that, that uh, chimpanzees were probably uh, the, the best plaintiffs uh, to begin with because there was so much known about them. Uh, uh, people like Jane Goodall, for example, who's on my board, board of directors and I've known for almost 25 years, that, that they had done so much work with chimpanzees, both in the wild and in captivity, for so many years, we knew an extraordinary amount about, uh, about the cognitive abilities of chimpanzees. What we knew about them showed that they were uh, both extraordinarily cognitively complex beings and they were extraordinarily cognitively complex in the way that that we are, so that we could understand their kinds of complexities. And so that's why we decided to begin with chimpanzees. Now, I also talked about what what causes of action might might we use. And so I talked about something called the common law writ of habeas corpus for about two pages in Rounding the Cage. But my third book which was Though the Heavens May Fall, was really a, a, a story about a black slave named James Somerset who had been kidnapped from West Africa, brought to the 
the American colonies in the 1750s and had been the, the slave of a Scottish businessman out of Virginia named uh, Charles Stewart. And eventually Stewart in 1770 brought James Somerset to England. James Somerset then escaped, and that was in 1771. And he decided he didn't want to be a slave anymore, and he dropped out of sight. And Charles Stewart then put slave catchers on him, and it took them two and a half months to find James Somerset. And they had been told that when they found him, not to bring them back to Charles Stewart, but to bring James to a ship called the Anna Mary and have him chained to the deck and sail him to Jamaica, where he would then be uh, be sold in the slave markets and be forced to harvest sugarcane for the three to five years that a slave usually had to live who, who had to do this kind of back, backbreaking work. And so what happened was that, you know, for the first time in history, somebody, and here it was likely James Somerset's three godparents, went to a judge here, Lord Mansfield, who was, who was uh, Chief Justice of the, of the uh, Court of King's Bench in, in England, and one of the greatest judges ever, ever to speak English. And they demanded that he issue what's called a common law writ of habeas corpus. Now, a writ of habeas corpus means, or habeas corpus means, you have the body. And so it's, some, it's, a, it's a very, very important uh, writ that has evolved over, over 800 years to, to mean that if any, any person who is being de detained against his or her will, someone else can come into court and go in front of a judge and ask that the judge issue the writ of habeas corpus to the, the, the jailer, require the jailer to come in and give a legally sufficient reason for why you're holding this other person a prisoner. Now, the common law means that, that it's not a statute, it's not a written constitution, Common law is the law that judges make, and common law judges actually make law as opposed to, say, civil law judges. So it's, it's the law that, that common law, English-speaking judges make, while in the process of deciding one case after another. So it's a very flexible thing. So Lord Mansfield had actually been, been almost bombarded with, with cases over the previous five, five or six years that kind of tried to nip away at English slavery, but uh, none had ever really confronted it head on. And so the moment that James Somerset's three godparents went into Lord Mansfield and said, we want you to issue a writ of habeas corpus uh, to the captain of the Anna Mary and require him to bring in James Somerset into the courtroom and give a legally sufficient reason for, for detaining him, that was you know, one of the most extraordinary moments in history. And it's a moment that, that I certainly am aware of because I wrote about it in Though the Heavens May Fall. But it's, it's a moment that all of us in the Non-Human Rights Project understand because we've now done that four times. We have now gone into a court on behalf of a chimpanzee and said, we, we want you, Judge, to issue a common law writ of habeas corpus to, to, the, to the person who is detaining the chimpanzee. Now, it's not an easy decision for a judge to make because a writ of habeas corpus is something you only issue to someone who is detaining a person. You cannot issue it to someone who is detaining a thing. So when James Somerset's three godparents came into him in, in, in that day in November in 1771 and demanded that he issue the writ of habeas corpus, Lord Mansfield could have said, he's a slave, he's a thing, I'm not going to issue it, it's not an appropriate writ to issue. But he didn't do that. 
What he did was really assumed without deciding that James Somerset could be a person, and for the first time in history, he issued a writ of habeas corpus to bring a slave in into court and thereby have a series of hearings that in that case stretched out almost seven months, at the end of which, on June 22, 1772, Lord Mansfield then said that, that slavery was so odious, and he used the word odious, that the common law would not support it, and he ordered James Somerset discharged. And this was essentially the end of slavery in England proper. So, it wasn't the end of slavery in the, in the colonies, but it was the end of slavery in England proper. And this, so this the reason true. I spent... I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. The reason I spent so much time researching, it took me three years to research and write that book, was to tell the story, investigate why Lord Mansfield decided to, to do this, and to really lay out a blueprint for what the non-human rights project was going to do. And I didn't know for sure when that was going to happen, but I thought it would be within about 10 years, and it was in within eight years, in which we would go to a court and really make the same sort of demands on that court on behalf of a non-human animal, likely a chimpanzee, that James Somerset's godparents had made upon Lord Mansfield. Well, it's, it's an astonishing, and, and the history behind this is, is fascinating and really critical for us older people, and especially younger people, to understand why, and this is what we're going to get into a little further here, um, with all the animal rights, animal welfare, here in the West, and you see it ubiquitously on Facebook or whatever, the, um, the consciousness that we have raised about animals. Um, so this takes us, what you had just talked about was basically what I believe you said, proof of body. Habeas corpus, you provided a body. There was a living thing that this judge decided um, or presumed for whatever reason that um, the slave was uh, a human being. So he had well, not, not, not a human being, a, a, a person, a person. Because remember, a person is a technical legal legal term, meaning someone who can who has the capacity for rights. I mean, clearly James Somerset is a human being, but James Somerset also was a slave, and until that moment, you could be both a human being and a thing. And it's, this is such a sticky wicket. It is so convoluted. And um, this is a great uh, moment here to just uh, mention to our listeners, please visit uh, the Non-Human Rights Org uh, www.nonhumanrights.org website. You will learn a tremendous amount, and within there, you'll see the Non-Human Rights Project Org overview, which is really critical to understand and more information about what Steve has told us. And then there's a great spot, Steve's blog, which keeps you and sign up for the newsletter because there is so much happening uh, on today's landscape about human rights with Sasa the lion, with the latest kill of the elephant, the largest tusker to be killed in Zimbabwe, in Africa for 30 years. And as we activists and advocates and conservationists, whose goals are not always the same um, and whose, whose missions are similar but goals are not always the same, um, to understand the perspective and this huge paradigm shift that, we're, that we have faced and the one that we're on right now, this tipping point. So, Steve, it brings me in to a question that rights and uh, personhood and non-human rights, and you, you brought a case uh, to the court several times, Tommy the Chimp. I think yes. the first two times it was turned down. Um, I have to say, what happened, or ask, what happened in the third case? I believe there was Let, some success. 
Let me explain what actually what, what, what happened. So in that first week of December 2013, we filed actually three lawsuits in the state of New York on behalf of four chimpanzees. So one of them was on behalf of Tommy, who we had found in a cage in New York uh, in a kind of a warehouse-like structure on a used trailer lot in Gloversville, New York. He was by himself. The second one we filed was in Niagara Falls, where we found a chimpanzee named Kiko, who was also living by himself, kind of in, 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 in the back of a cement storefront in Niagara Falls. Uh, the third lawsuit we brought in, uh, on, in uh, Long Island, in Suffolk County, on behalf of two chimpanzees, Hercules and Leo, who were being used for experimentation, not even for biomedical experimentation, but to satisfy the curiosity of the anatomy department who wants to understand uh, why it is that, that uh, we evolved from, uh, having, from, from being an animal like a chimpanzee who walked with bent legs to walking with straight legs like we did now. Uh, I don't think any of them had, in, enraged us more than the Hercules and Leo case because those, you know, those little chimpanzees from the age of two to about age of eight, for six years, they have been kept in, 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 in a basement in a building, on a campus. Uh, as far as we know, they have not seen the sun. Uh, they've been in a, in, in a cage. Um, they have not been treated nicely. And uh, uh, that was you know, quite upsetting to us. But we found, I mean, the other two were too. We don't like to see Tommy in a cage or Kiko in a cage. And so what we did was file a series of three lawsuits in three different parts of New York uh, and in, in, in three different Supreme Courts. Now, you have to understand that in New York, for their reason, a Supreme Court is the lowest court. The highest court is called the Court of Appeals. And so also you have to understand that, that the state of New York has four intermediate appellate courts. So they have the first, second, third, and fourth department. And that all four of those funnel up to the high court, which is the Court of Appeals. So we filed three lawsuits, and it turned out that the lawsuit we filed on behalf of Tommy, on behalf of Kiko, and the third one on behalf of Hercules and Leo were filed in the second, third, and fourth, fourth departments. And so each of those three departments really has its own law, unless the Court of Appeals, the High Court of New York, says that it's going to be something else. So we then, uh, in, on, on all three cases, Tommy's, Kiko's, and uh, Hercules and Leo. We went in front of the court the way Lord Man, where the way uh, James Summers had, the godparents had done. We went in and we demanded that the judge issue a common law writ of habeas corpus. Although New York also also allows something called an order to show cause, which is what we really asked for. Because if you if you remember, a writ of habeas corpus meant that the captain of the Anna Mary had to bring the body of James Somerset before the court. We did not want any chimpanzees to be brought into the courtroom. So New York allows you to bring what's called an order to show cause, where the chimpanzees or the you know could stay wherever they were, but the people who were imprisoning them would have to come into court and and give a legally sufficient reason for for imprisoning them. So each time that we brought those three cases on behalf of Tommy, Kiko, and then Hercules and Leo. Each time, the judge refused to issue the writ of habeas corpus on the grounds that chimpanzees were not persons. 
And we expected that. So what, what we did is that we then appealed each of them as, as we lost each. And we fully expected to do that. So what then happened was that the first court, which was, which was the second department, in, uh, the, uh, was the first one who made a decision in, in Hercules and Leo's case. And they simply said, we didn't have a right to appeal in the first place. Uh, I won't tell you why. All I can tell you is is they were completely wrong, uh, and they were so wrong that we did not want. We didn't even want to bother appealing it. We just decided to refile the cases in another place. And in on that note, um, Tommy's case. I'm sorry. Go ahead. In Tommy's case, that court ruled against us. It did because they said that in order to be a person, you have to, even for purposes of habeas corpus, you have to bear, be able to bear duties and responsibilities. Uh, we thought that was wrong, too. There had been no court in the English-speaking world who had ever said that in order to be a person, you have to be able to bear duties and responsibilities. And it was also not, not it wasn't relevant to whether or not you can be imprisoned as Tommy was being imprisoned for his entire life. So, but, but we did lose on that ground there. Finally, in the fourth department, we brought a lawsuit on behalf of, uh, we had an appeal on behalf of Kiko, and they said that we couldn't use a writ of habeas corpus because you can only use a writ of habeas corpus in order not to move someone from one place of confinement to another. We're trying to move Kiko from his, his uh, cage into, say, the chimps, the chimpanzee sanctuary. But instead, you had to be able to release them unconditionally, which, of course, no one would advocate putting a chimpanzee out onto the streets of New York. So as far as we've come in defining personhood and creating non-human legal rights and the assumptions and presumptions that we make today, now it seems we're trying to make it even more convoluted by adding caveats to what was originally law back in the 1700s and habeas corpus. So at this moment, we have to cut away for a break, so stick with us with my guest, Stephen Wise, because we have a lot more coming up. We'll be right back. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back, Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my fascinating guest, Stephen Wise. So, in the first two sections, we covered a great amount of history and the convoluted background and procedural theory that needed to be taken into consideration in order for Steve and his organization to defend cases such as the rights of chimpanzees. Steve, we we ran out of time at the last section, but you were going to talk about uh, the most recent case, which went very differently than the other two. Tell us a little bit about that and why, uh, as we were just discussing during the break here, the whole uh, concept of personhood and chimpanzees. And then we're going to segue into some larger landscape issues. Uh, Sure. Well, we we then... um uh, d- decided to refile Hercules and Leo's case, which, remember, had, had just been thrown out, we thought, completely wrongly. We decided to refile it this time in Manhattan, which was in the first department. And this time we drew a, just, a judge named Justice Barbara Jaffe. Justice Jaffe then became the first judge ever to actually issue the order to show cause. She ordered Stony Brook, who was... Uh, who was imprisoning Hercules and Leo to come into court and to give a legally sufficient reason for keeping Hercules and Leo prisoners. And because we were suing Stony Brook, a state, a state university, we were then opposed by the Attorney General of New York. And so on May 27th, we had really this huge confrontation in court uh, that lasted about two hours, uh, and it was highly publicized all over the world. And uh, about a little over two months later, Justice Dan Jaffe issued a very complicated 33-page opinion in which she did some amazing things. For one thing, uh, all of the numerous procedural obstacles that the Attorney General threw up in in, in order to prevent us from reaching the merits, one by one, she threw them out. She said that she, she, she ruled in our favor, including perhaps one of the most important, which is the idea of standing, the fact that that someone, you, in order to be able to file a lawsuit, you have to have someone who is a person, and that person has to be injured. They have to both be a person, and they have to be injured. For the first time, a judge allowed a human organization, the non-human rights project, to have standing based not on their injury. We didn't claim that we were being injured, but based upon the injury of a chimpanzee, of a non-human animal. And that was really the first time in the world it had ever happened. And that was a a huge step forward. And Justice Jaffe then um, really dismissed all of the arguments that the Attorney General kept making against us in the the course of this 33-page opinion. At the end, though, we, we lost because she felt that she, as a lower court, was bound by what the third department appellate court had ruled in Tommy's case, saying that in order to be a person, you have to be able to bear duties and responsibilities. That was because the appellate court that oversees her had never ruled on it at, at all. And so she ends by saying, for now, which we thought was very important, you know, for now, because I feel bound by that decision, I have to dismiss your habeas corpus. 
So we then appealed that, but we're also um, uh, we're also in very intense negotiations with Stony Brook and, and others to move Hercules and Leo to Save the Chimps, the spectacular sanctuary in Fort Pierce, Florida, anyway. But we are, we are in the process of negotiating, and then we're in the process of likely refiling, uh, if that happens, Tommy's and Kiko's case, also in, the, in Manhattan, or appealing Justice Jaffe's decision up to the First Department in the appellate court, and arguing both, number one, that the third department saying you have to have be involved, you have to have the capacity to have uh, to shoulder duties and responsibilities in order to be a person is just flat wrong as a matter of law, and it is. Or if you if you do accept that standard, we have spent the last four months gathering affidavits from many of the experts that we had used in our original cases, plus Jane Goodall, uh, who sh- will give us. Page after page, probably 50 pages of examples of which chimpanzees can bear duties and responsibilities, both within their own chimpanzee cultures and within a chimpanzee human culture. So we are going to be filing and refiling and refiling and litigating these cases you know, again and again and again within the state of New York uh, as we begin to, to chip away all of the obstacles that stand before us, and we are—we're feeling more and more confident that we have quite a reasonable chance of ultimately having a chimpanzee declared a thing in the state. I'm sorry, declared a person in the state of New York. Meanwhile, we're also uh, getting affidavits from all the top elephant experts in the world, and we are preparing to file a habeas corpus on behalf of an elephant in another state. And that will—that will will happen probably by January or February of uh, 2016. So, listeners, you're definitely going to want to stay tuned to the nonhumanrights.org website and their overview and the blog and their newsletter. I strongly uh, urge you to sign up for their newsletter because this is incredible, incredibly important information. We are at a paradigm shift right now. We all feel it through 2015, and we are at tipping points across the globe in changes of how we humans view and exist in relationships with our non-human neighbors, which is what this program talks about all the time, and um, just to stay abreast of the complexity of what's going on. So, Steve, you mentioned uh, the judge's uh, summary comment for now. Such weighted words which open up um, the possibilities, as you've just discussed. So, we've been taught, we've covered pretty well um, issues of captivity. You've mentioned uh, that one of the legal basis for cause for non-human rights is cognitive function that we relate to. I can understand that in terms of chimpanzees, great apes, gorillas, dolphins, and elephants. So, and, and what you've covered most so, so far are those in the United States on this continent and that are in captivity or private ownership or sanctuary. Let's take this another step to our wild world. Um, if we should succeed in getting personhood and rights for a chimpanzee in captivity and all the myriad things that is going to cause to change or let's say reorient throughout the scientific community, the zoo community, the private ownership community, what is it going to do to wildlife? Those numerous unnamed dubious ownership according to national law, uh, governments, and the agencies that are tasked with their conservation and protection. 
What will this do to wildlife? Well, we know that when we're filing lawsuits on behalf of chimpanzees, that there are obviously many, many more chimpanzees who live in the wild than who live in captivity, just as there are many, many more elephants who live in the wild or orcas or, or than who live in the wild than in cap captivity. Uh, one of the reasons that we bring these kinds of suits is that we believe that, that the, their characterization as being persons who have certain, certain rights or the capacity for, for other rights within the United States will both end up putting, with political pressure being put on the governments of the range countries to begin to treat them not just as natural resources, but as persons who have inherent value. We're hoping that, for example, the U.S. Congress will become more active in, in helping to protect them and helping, and helping the range governments to protect them. Uh, we think that, that personhood for non-human animals in one state or one country will inevitably lead to personhood in other states, in other countries, and that eventually, potentially even within the range countries, but even if it isn't directly within the range countries, uh, there, it will be understood that their status is being raised. They're no longer just natural resources. They're no longer just things that you can do anything you want with. They are indeed persons who have inherent value, and that uh, that we think that conservation organizations will be able to to work with that. The range governments will be able to work with that. The non-range governments will be able to work with that. This is huge. So it brings me into another question. Um, we've talked about, you know, the U.S. and Europe usually follow each other, the developed world, uh, as, as we so often call it. Well, the undeveloped world is really no longer undeveloped. It has emerged, places like Africa. So let's say we accomplish this across the U.S. and Europe, and um, we have access to this information. The courts, they function. It's not corrupt. How would this kind of a decision affect the people who don't have access to this, who often don't understand the law or under corrupt uh, governments or whatever, how will it affect the local people who are really living side by side with predatory and destructive wildlife, elephants, lions, um, carnivores, or wherever this may exist, uh, in Africa or elsewhere, and those communities and locations who don't have access to this information? Um, whose rights would trump? Well, you know, that's what courts and legislatures are for because, you know, I, I can't pretend that, that, that a clash of rights either between humans and non-humans or between one human and, and, and another human is an easy thing to resolve. But right now, when you have the interests of humans and non-humans, when they clash, the humans almost, you know, always win because the humans are right-bearers who have their, their, their persons. And the non-human animals are things, and so it's an it's an uneven battle. It's an asymmetrical warfare here. Uh, well, absolutely, because we humans fall. we humans seem to make the laws in regards and according to humanhood um, that we are above and separate from nature, which I always say we are not. We are inextricably linked, and we can see that yeah, with yeah. everything that is happening now: climate change, to species loss, to habitat loss and a growing and expanding human population encroaching into what were wild spaces. So it's going to be interesting to see how this 
trickles down, trickles out across the world uh, with pressure, public pressure, governmental pressure, um, law, having it written in law, and to see how it, it trickles out. Um, so how do you think redefining personhood and getting, let's say, a captive chimp rights um, throughout not only captivity here and, you know, discussions I've had with your colleague, uh, Stephen Ross, uh, who has done a lot of work on chimpanzees and chimp care and Project Chimp Care and um, knowing where all the chimps are in the U.S. Um, and elephants. We, we met again recently at the Jackson Hole Festival with the Elephant Summit and Cynthia Moss, Joyce Poole, Ian Douglas Hamilton, everybody who's working on understanding and providing data of how complex elephants are. And then there's the other aspect, lions, iconic species. Um, so where do you think this will, where, I'm going to bring it back to your book, where do you think we'll end up drawing the line? Or where, it, where do you think the lines will be drawn in the first coming steps? That might be an easier way to ask that question. Well, if I may say, by the way, Cynthia Moss, Joyce Poole, Ian Douglas Hamilton are all, th are all experts who are submitting affidavits for our, our, our elephant case. Uh, they're amongst them. Lucy Bates, Richard Byrne. Uh, uh, there's, there are two more, Karen McComb and one more who, uh, who I cannot recall. They're all submitting expert, uh, expert affidavits, and uh, they, are the, they are the experts in, in the world. Um, here's, what, here's what we're doing. We are taking the first step. We are demonstrating to the world that, it, that a non-human animal can be a person, doesn't, cannot, doesn't have to be a thing, can be a person, and that we're then going to try to, uh, to show that other non-human animals can be persons. What that does, it really does cause a paradigm shift because it will cause judges and legislators who, until that time, didn't really take into serious consideration even the most fundamental interests of so many non-human animals because they're viewed as a resource or they're viewed as a thing. They're viewed as something that God put on the earth for us to manipulate or kill or do whatever we want to them. Once they begin to be seen as legal persons, then they have their own rights and they have to be viewed as with, with the respect that rights bearers are are viewed. And so when there is then a conflict between human interests and non-human interests, it will not be it, 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 it will not be a matter of, of a struggle between a rights bearer and, and their thing. It will be a conflict between rights. And that's what judges do, that's what legislators do, that's what people who do international treaties deal with. How do you how do you deal with conflicting Rights, but at that point, it'll be a much more you know even battlefield. It'll be an even fight. It'll be right against right, as opposed to a a person versus a thing. This and is so where where that's going to go remains to be seen. Be so <laughs> the process will begin. The process will begin, and that's what we're trying to do to to begin the process and catalyze the, this this paradigm shift that you've been speaking of. Well, I think you've, you've definitely begun it. I think we have moved along um, the first steps with the court cases, the many cases from defending dogs to um, representing chimpanzees in the legal court of law. Um, however this finally shakes out, it's going to affect 
a tremendous amount of conservation, uh, animal rights activism in terms of funding for conservation, in terms of uh, trophy hunting, Cecil the Lion. Um, we all talk of him as a person because he had a name to those that don't have names. And it's going to affect the trade. CITES comes in to question here of who and what we trade and why. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, huge, it's a huge paradigm shift. So at least yeah. we, we have just one minute left, and it, I'll let you go on, and, but it one, comes to one question. Um, if, all right, I, for, I lost my question. Um, do you think, oh, oh, here it is. Do you think this <laughs> whole concept of personhood for non-humans is a luxury of the West versus, let's say, the rural, tribal, ethnic communities who live with resources? which include wildlife? Uh, no, I, I, I think it's, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. Uh, the, the fact that, uh, that an entity is a non-human animal, but, the, but otherwise they ought to be a person, really means that, that they ought to be a person. And once, they're, once they aren't persons, then they can't be killed. They can't be treated the way they have been. And so uh, people are going to have to... Uh, to reevaluate the manner uh, in which they are indeed treated. The way we engage with each other and every other living being on this planet Earth. Yes, but first, before you take someone's interest into consideration, you have to see them, and they have to command your respect. And that's what thinghood, I'm sorry, that's what personhood has, has always done. Through the centuries, any time someone was fighting for their interest, a human being was, what they wanted were rights. They wanted their rights because once you have a certain right, people can no longer exploit you the way they had been before. And in a nutshell, that's exactly what this program, Our Wild World, is about. So, Stephen, I can't thank you enough because you just gave us a huge amount of information that provides a basis for, as we've been talking about, this paradigm shift of how we are going to reconnect with each other and nature and this planet we call home and our very survival and the survival of every other living thing. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, if you want, again, if you want to follow us, look at nonhumanrights.org. If you want to donate to us, the more donations we have, the more lawyers we can hire, uh, please do that. Go to nonhumanrights.org. And please, I urge our listeners to visit the website. There's a tremendous amount of information. And do please support uh, Stephen's organization, Non-Human Rights, because this is the basis of our future. And that's it. We're out of time. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest Stephen Wise, and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 